Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. 1968, December. On December 21st, that three men manned a spacecraft known as the Apollo 8, situated on top of a Saturn V rocket were launched into space. Six-day journey from the Earth to the moon. And they were the first three men of only 24 who would orbit the moon. These three guys took three days to get up there, three days to get back. When they got up there, they circled the moon ten times. On its ninth circle around the moon. It was Christmas Eve, December 25th. Jim Lovell, William Anders, Frank Borman were the three astronauts that were on board on that historic occasion. When they came around the moon, they looked out the window and they saw the earth, green, turquoise, sitting in a sea of black. And they took these photographs that became known as Earth Rise. Jim Lovell took his thumb, put it outside or put it right on the window and blocked out the Earth. And he thought to himself, if my thumb can block out the Earth, how insignificant are we really in this universe? And to think that the Son of God would come to this spot that from the right perspective could be blotted out with our thumb and the billions of people upon that planet blotted out by our thumb. And how big is God's thumb, you know, if he had a thumb, if he had a thumb, not a Mormon, just making a suggestion. If he had a thumb, how much of the universe could he blot out, not just the earth. As they came around the moon, they gave a Christmas gift to the inhabitants, that's you and I, (laughs) of the earth. And the Christmas gift was each one of them read from Genesis chapter 1. And they read the first 10 verses, and those verses say this, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth 
was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Can you imagine reading this while looking out that porthole at the earth in the midst of space? You know? And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. And God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced the vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And then they bid the earth, a God bless you, and he said, God, and they said, God bless you to the good earth. It was one of the most moving moments in probably the latter portion of the 20th century. Certainly a moment of great encouragement after having gone through such a horrific year. Many referred to that moment as the event that redeemed 191968. So I th- thought about that 45 years ago in light of where we've come from. And for some, we might be thinking 2013, what a difficult, I don't know if we'd say horrific in light of what 1968 brought, but we might be thinking what a difficult year. And what does 2014 have on the horizon? Let me suggest to you that the way to approach 2014 and the way to find hope despite what you may have experienced in the past year is the same way that Jim Lovell, Frank Borman, and William Anders had inspired hope among the people uh, here on the earth in 1968. They drew the attention of the people to the living God. Their focus was on the Lord who made the heavens and the earth and made all things good, and as Leanne had mentioned, who intends to take all things, whether bad or good, and bring about a good thing in our lives. I love that passage in Genesis. You know, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And Romans says, All things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Of course, you can't believe that unless your focus is on him. You can't really 
find hope in that unless your focus is on him and not the circumstances and surroundings and personal experiences of our lives. When you look at a passage that I wanted to draw our attention to, Isaiah 11, I wanted us to look there because we've been looking at Isaiah 7.14. We looked at Isaiah 9.6. We looked at Micah 5.2. All these passages about the coming of Messiah into our world in a humble, lowly sort of fashion in order to bring about hope and redemption and reconciliation with God. But when we get to chapter 11, the scene shifts and we begin to get a view of what God's intention is ultimately for our world and for our lives. And when our focus is on that, it can make our life presently a little bit more easier to deal with and to face. It's all about seeing Messiah. Now, just before we look at Isaiah chapter 11, this passage that comes to my attention is in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 2. You don't have to turn there, but in chapter 2, um, verse 8 or so, the writer says, in putting everything under him, that is under Messiah, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we don't see everything subject to him. God has given everything to the Messiah of Israel. God has subjected everything under the feet of the Messiah of Israel, the King of all kings. But right now we don't see things that way. That's where our hope and faith needs to be energized. We don't see that he's in control of all things sometimes because it appears as if our life is out of control. But the writer reminds us, everything is subjected to him. Although we don't see it all that way just yet. He says, but what do we see? In verse 9, but we see Yeshua. We see Jesus. We see Yeshua who is made a little lower than the angels. But he's now crowned with glory. But what we see is him. If we focus our attention on him through the study of his word, and through those circumstances in our lives that do present his very presence in the midst of the challenges we face. It's sort of like those Greeks that came to the disciples of Messiah and say, Sirs, we would see Messiah. It is him that we've come to embrace. It is him we've come to follow. It is him that we've come to be inspired by and to find hope in. Now, if you look at Isaiah chapter 11, we see why he can inspire hope. We saw how Micah told us he'd be born in Bethlehem, and he was. We saw how Isaiah the prophet told Ahaz and the Davidic dynasty, Messiah would be born in a miraculous, supernatural way through a circumstance which is seemingly impossible. A virgin shall bear a child and shall call his name Emmanuel. Remember those words that Isaiah told Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord. It can be as high as the heavens and as deep as the inner recesses of the earth. Anywhere in that spectrum, ask anything. Make it as hard and as difficult and as outlandish as you may want. And Ahaz said he would not test the Lord. 
an act of self-righteousness as we saw. So what does the text say? God himself will give you a sign. And the sign that God himself would give would be as outrageous as one might imagine. And so it is God who sets the stage and says it would be a virgin that would give birth to a son, a child. We looked at Isaiah 9.6, and in Isaiah 9.6 it says that a child was born, a son was given, and his name would be called um, Wonderful Counselor. Thank you. I was trying to think Hebrew, English, Hebrew. <laughs> Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. The everlasting father, the prince of peace. He is so called because he is Emmanuel, God with us. And so hope is inspired by the presence of the living God. Look at Isaiah 11 now. As this section known as the book of Emmanuel comes to a conclusion, it concludes on a crescendo, a high note. And it says in verse 11, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is the father of David. He's making reference to the Davidic dynasty. The Davidic dynasty is like it's lopped off and the tree has been sliced and all we have is a stump. And because the Davidic dynasty is in such disarray and there seems to be hopelessness, it's not even called the stump of David. It's called the stump of Jesse the father of David, to emphasize the hopeless state of God's or or the expectation for God to fulfill his promise to David. And out of that lopped off stump, a shoot emerges, a twig, a branch, one of those things you can kind of just hit and it sort of just dings, you know, I don't know, twongs. (laughs) It is so fragile. And so young and youthful, it's not like this strong staff that's growing out, but just a little, a little shoot that's coming forth. The implication is, what could this shoot possibly provide for David and for the people of Israel? And so the writer tells us, Isaiah tells us, that little shoot of apparent insignificance would be the shoot upon which the very spirit of the Lord would descend and would manifest himself. You can't help but think of Messiah's immersion by Yochanan, John, the immerser, the Baptist. And you remember when he immerses him, it says that the heavens were opened. The voice of the Lord speaks and says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we are told that John then saw the Spirit of God descend upon the Messiah like a dove. His whole point is that this is the one upon whom the Spirit of God descended without measure. This is the one upon whom the spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and power, knowledge and the fear of the Lord rests upon. That is why 
In Luke chapter 4, when Messiah stands up, he quotes Isaiah 61, and it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim liberty to the nations and release of bondage. And he closes the book of Isaiah, and he stands up and he says, Today this word is fulfilled in your ears. He's the one upon whom the fullness of the Spirit of God indwells and has descended. That is why we light the menorah. Some people would say, we don't like this idea of lighting candles on the Shabbat because you're not supposed to make a fire. But there's interesting statement about the law. It says you're not to make a fire in your home, specifically. I don't think any of us live here. Technically, you are permitted to make a fire, provided it's not in your home, according to Mosaic law, if we're going to be specific about what the law says. But if we want to broaden our homes to involve wherever we happen to be, I'm not so certain lighting a candle is what Moses is talking about in terms of making a fire. That's making a flame. (laughs) Just my rationale. But I don't know if that's making a fire. It's creating a flame, in my opinion. But the lighting of the candles, even if it was making a fire, to me has a symbolic concern that goes beyond the law. It's meant to point out the sevenfold, that's why we read from Isaiah 11, the sevenfold filling of the Spirit that rested on the Messiah of Israel. It's meant to draw our attention to Him and not merely the menorah. Keep in mind, in the holy place, in the temple, the menorah was lit every morning and evening to keep the oil going so that the menorah was always lit. On the Shabbat, they lit the menorah. And thus, I do not see it as a problem in any way, shape, or form. Our point is we want to draw attention to Messiah. We would see Yeshua. Now we see Messiah, but not everything subjected to him. If we're to find hope, It's in the presence of the Spirit-filled Messiah of Israel who is filled with the Spirit, the text says, without measure. You and I are filled with the Spirit in measure. The fullness of the Spirit cannot descend completely upon us because of our limitations. Messiah was unique. The Spirit of God dwelt within him and upon him without measure. And thus, where two or more are gathered... Here he is in our midst. The menorah is to remind us that he is here from beginning to end. And as we gather, we're reminded of just who the Messiah is. He's the one that we can go to during our time of need because he's the wonderful counselor and that because he is filled with the spirit of wisdom and understanding. He's the one we can go to to empower us to do what in our own strength we can't because he's the one in whom the spirit of counsel and power resides.
He's the one that can help us to see God, be yielded to him and submitted to him because the fullness of the spirit rests upon him, which is the spirit of knowledge and the fear, reverence of the Lord. It is to him we must go, especially when confronted by the challenges of life. Now, notice this. This tells us about who he is and why we can go to him. But look at what it further says. It says he will not judge but what his, what his eyes see or his ears hear. In other words, he will not merely judge by the external things he sees and hears and perceives. But he can look into the very recesses of our hearts and therefore can judge with righteousness and with just justice. Because he doesn't just respond to what is external, but he knows the very thoughts and intents of every human heart. If you would, turn with me to the last book of the Scriptures, the book of Revelation. When Messiah returns, Revelation 19, was just a spectacular moment in all of time. And it says in verse 11 that John saw heaven standing open. It's as if space opens up like a curtain. And there before me, right before John, as clear as day, he saw a white horse. And notice, the rider on the horse is called faithful and true. And with justice, he judges and makes war. Keep your finger there. Look back at Isaiah chapter 11. It says that he will not judge by what he sees, but with righteousness and with justice. What John saw is what Isaiah predicted would be the reality of our Messiah. Look at verse 19, uh, chapter 19 in Revelation again. He, he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. John would tell us this. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And the armies of heaven were following him riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with an iron scepter. He says that right in Psalm 2. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe. And on his thigh he has this name written, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. These are additional enthronement names that are given. Now look at this. This tells us about his character, tells us about his person, why we can trust him, what he's coming to do. Look at what he does, his program, if you will. Notice when he comes in all of his glory, the world will be transformed. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, a little child will lead them. These ferocious animals, these stalker-type animals that feed on these lesser animals will dwell together and a child will see them as just their own pets, 
and ones that they can just sort of hang out with. It says the infant will play near the entrance of the cobra, and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest, and there will not be any harm. Nothing will be destroyed in all of the earth, because Messiah's presence will cover the earth from one end to the other, from sea to sea. These are the things we need to fill our minds and hearts and souls with as we face the challenges of our lives. We see Messiah now lower than the angels, but we will not always see him that way, and we will not always see him that way in our own personal lives sometimes. He will manifest himself to us as the one filled with the Spirit. He will manifest himself as the one who will bring about peace and harmony in our world and can begin to manifest those things in our lives today to a limited degree. But in our day and in our own particular lives. But it's hard to grasp your hand around these things unless you are understanding of them, unless you see them, unless you embrace them, unless you meditate on them, unless you believe them and trust in them. And then notice what happens with the people. We saw his person, his program, you could say, but look at verse 10, in that day the root of Jesse will no longer be that little shoot that's just very gingerly existing, but he will be a rallying point, a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him. And his place of rest will be a glorious one. In that day, he will regather his people. And Jew and Gentile will come flowing into the land of Israel to give praise, honor, and glory to the living God. This is such a marvelous passage. And of course, it concludes in chapter 12 with Isaiah saying, I will praise you, O Lord. To be sure, you were angry with us because of our sin, but your anger is turned away, and now you comfort us. My encouragement to you in 2014, and as you reflect back maybe on 2013 and even further back, is that you do so with the eyes of faith and with the eyes of understanding of what the Scripture tells us about the living God. Remember, though a shoot, and we see him this way, that's not all that he is. He's the one upon whom the fullness of the Spirit rests. So go to him, that he would share of his Spirit with you, to encourage you, to empower you, to challenge you, to enable you, to reverence God the way we all ought. When you're going through your times of challenges and difficulties, remember this is the one who is faithful and true. This is the one who will ultimately correct all wrongs. This is the one who will act justly and righteously. This is the one who acts with compassion and grace and brings comfort and draws us into the very presence of the living God. Remember, he is the one who will transform our world to bring about peace between the animal kingdom as well as between human beings. And he's the one that can give a semblance of that ultimate peace in our lives even now. There are no tricks of the trade. It is all about coming to the Lord, embracing him, reflecting on his word, 
meditating in prayer, reminding ourselves of these truths. I do not say that we cannot be helped by each other's counsel and advice, but at the end of the day, we must go before him because he's the king of all kings. He's the Lord of all lords. He's the one who is faithful and true. He's the one who is our comforter and guide. He's the one who has the spirit of the living God dwelling upon him without measure. He's the one that has the spirit of wisdom and counsel, the one of knowledge and might, the one of the fear, very fear and reverence for the Lord. Come to him and he will make that difference in your life. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. And may by your spirit, may it sear it to our hearts. And may we be ever mindful of your truth that is revealed in your word. There are a variety of philosophical thoughts that circulate our globe and that have been dispensed throughout the corridors of history. But at the end of the day, it is you who said, let there be, and it was. It is you who have sent Messiah into our world in the most outlandish of ways that we would be encouraged to trust in you and to follow your ways. Lord, it is your Son who is to come and establish his kingdom on earth. Father, may we fill our thoughts and our minds with the truths of your word of this great moment of hope that will one day descend upon our world. Help us, Father, therefore, to live faithfully before you. For you are the living God of this universe in whom we can trust and in whom we can believe. Like the disciples of old, Father, we do believe. Help our unbelief, O Lord, that we might live, dare I say it, victoriously in the midst of our challenges and trials of life. For we pray in Messiah's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.